present and future of the Disneyland Resort. Welcome to Project 55. Hi there. Welcome aboard Project 55, your gateway to the past, present, and future of the Disneyland Resort. I'm Chuck Rindon, and of course, I'm joined by Amy Nalawai. Amy, how are you? I'm doing all right. Surviving. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I guess you can't ask for too much more than that, right? <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, just excited to get to escape for a little bit here as we talk, you know, about what we have to talk about today. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. For me, it's definitely a, a bittersweet show. Uh, as you know, this week we're we're going to pay homage to the late great Paul Rubens. In case you weren't aware, he recently passed away, which was uh, well, at least to to most of us, seemed quite suddenly because he was very private about his battle with cancer. Mm-hmm. So it, it was uh, it was quite shocking for me. And, I don't know about you, Amy, but I certainly was a pretty big Pee Wee Herman fan as a young kid. I grew up in that era where Pee Wee's Playhouse was a Saturday morning staple. So uh, <laughs> kind of felt like I grew up with Pee Wee a little bit. I mean, it's certainly a staple of my childhood. Yeah, that was definitely something that I would watch with my friends on Saturdays. I, I like think back to like sleepovers. <laughs> and we'd, you know, eat breakfast and watch Wee's playhouse yeah. and i i just i just <laughs> i remember um his little catchphrases you know we'd <laughs> we'd repeat his little catchphrases often at one another so nice. yeah it was it was definitely uh a surprise when i heard the news i i kind of caught it on accident and as i was scrolling and i was like wait what that was exactly my reaction too. I literally did a double yeah. take because I couldn't believe it. And, and normally, I'm not someone who's faced by celebrity deaths, but this one got me. I, I guess maybe because it was so unexpected, I had no idea, as most of us did, obviously. And but also, Pee Wee Herman was just such a fixture of my youth. In particular, Pee Wee's Big Adventure. I absolutely loved that film as a kid. I watched it all the time. I was completely fascinated, loved all the imagery and just how grand it was and the score and everything just came together so beautifully. Uh, And then as an adult too, I I still watch it occasionally. It's always intrigued me. Uh, Paul Rubens, like the humor he imbibed in Pee Wee Herman was very smart. It it played to both children and adults alike because there was some subtle adult humor that... As a kid, it just went right over your head. And then as you get to be older, you know, you discover it uh, and you're like, wow, yeah. I see what you're doing there, Pee Wee. <laughs> and then, of course, that being a Tim Burton film, which you know, basically kind of launched Tim Burton's theatrical career. I mean, it certainly was his most uh, praised film at that time. And then, of course, the, the large Marge scene. That always freaked me out as a kid. <laughs> that was such a... It was such a Tim Burton scene too, but yeah, so so good. 
Paul Rubens, of course, wasn't just associated with Pee Wee Herman. Uh, he certainly had a deep ties to Disney and Disneyland, of course, which uh, we'll circle around to here in a little bit. But before we get there, uh, I wanted to open the show with Eats and Treats because uh, well, I'm a little hungry. <laughs> <laughs> just want to talk some food. <laughs> uh, but for this week, I, I thought we'd do a little casual. Don't really have a topic in mind. I, I'm just curious. Uh, Amy, what what are some things you've tried at the resort recently and uh, what do you think about them? Oh, well, um, I, I can't. You're speechless. I, re- I really am. I can't stop thinking about the Jolly Holidays s'more macaroni. I know I've mentioned it before, but like seriously. Clearly a favorite. Clearly a favorite. I just keep thinking about when I get to have it again. <laughs> <laughs> and and I I'm pretty sure it's a seasonal offering, so I don't think it's going to be around for too much longer. And most everything that I am loving right now is either a Disney 100 special offering or it's a seasonal offering. So I, I don't think they're going to be around for too much longer. That's always the way, right? They they get you hooked and then they take it away. Yeah, it breaks my little heart. But uh, yeah, that s'more macaron, that cookie is amazeballs and. Yeah, Jolly Holiday has like knocked it out of the park with that one. It's it's delicious. Um, been dreaming about that. <laughs> <laughs> I also tried the Cosmic Cream Orb from Terran Treats in DCA. Okay, okay, I'm curious about this one. It's this um, odd looking cream puff kind of a thing. I don't know how to describe it. Like it looks really weird. Like you see it and you're like, what is that? (laughs) It's, it's like purpley and it's covered with like this funky black stuff on the outside. And you're just like, it looks weird. So I'm assuming it's made to look like it's otherworldly. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> they they sell it at the Terran Treats cart across from Guardians right. of the Galaxy. So it definitely is supposed to look that way. But it's it's this cream puff type thing. It's filled. The 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 breading part um is the purpley stuff. And it's not as when I think of a cream puff, I think of like something that's a little bit more dense and chewy. I don't know. This wasn't, in my opinion, like the same texture as any of the cream puffs that I've ever had before, but it's, it's very similar. There's the, the, the black stuff on the outside is kind of like this Oreo cookie flavored stuff. That's on the outside. <laughs> to, to use the technical term. Yeah. I mean, it's stuff. Yeah. I don't know. I'm, I'm not a baker type person. I have no idea what terminology to use. Nor am I. I. I just put it in my mouth and say, is it good or not? I'm good to eat it. It's delicious. So it's got the Oreo cookie stuff on the outside and then it's on top of the like purpley dough part, I guess you would call it. And then inside is this um, just really light, fluffy. Um, it's I think it's supposed to be a raspberry cheesecake flavor filling. Mm, okay. I don't know. It just it didn't taste like super raspberry to me, but I don't care. It was delicious. And <laughs> and as I sat there and 
ate mine for the first time, I was like, I was enjoying every single bite. And the next thing I know, the lady at the table next to me is like, what are you eating? (laughs) She she was so intrigued that she had to ask me what it was. And so I, you know, gave her the quick rundown and, and she was intrigued. She asked me what I thought of it. And I was like, um, I'm sort of digging it right now. (laughs) She actually ended up going to get one too. So in that moment, you were a food influencer. Food influencer. She actually went and bought one. Yeah, it was delicious. And I wasn't expecting it because it looked so strange. (laughs) That I was like, what what did I just do? But I was informed <laughs> of this little treat by a friend who um kind of knows knows what I like. And 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 so I trusted their guidance. But it just like it was one of those moments where I was like, what did I just buy? Cause <laughs> I don't know. But um yeah, that's it, the Terran treats. Um it's pretty dang tasty. Um the other thing that I'm sort of obsessed with and heartbroken that it's a Disney 100 thing as well is the strawberry cheesecake bread pudding from the Pacific Wharf. Yes. I wanted to try this so bad and I believe it or not, I ended up forgetting about it last time I was there. (laughs) I'm so mad at myself. Yes. I've heard nothing but amazing things. It's really good. (laughs) It's, it's also like, as far as Disney desserts go, it's pretty it's pretty big and filling. I was surprised. Or maybe it was just because I had it after having a sourdough bread bowl <laughs> from the Pacific <laughs> Wharf as well. Right. But it was I it was delicious. I literally had to sit there and uh, tell the rest of my group that like you can go on without me. I am sitting here to finish this dessert because it's that good. Also at the Pacific Wharf, another favorite right now for me, unfortunately, another seasonal offering is the beer cheese soup in the sourdough bread bowl. Mm, that just sounds like it's amazing. It, it was so good. And then it's like topped with the little pretzels. Like, you know, you go to like beer garden or whatever and get like the big Bavarian pretzel with the cheese fondue or something like that. Mm, it, it's mm-hmm. got like the chunks of the pretzel in the the soup, but then it comes in the sourdough bread bowl, which is just evil because it's a delicious cheesy soup in the sourdough bread bowl. And yeah, it's, it's pretty delicious. So I, those were the first things that came to mind. <laughs> that I am absolutely loving and like I said kind of heartbroken that most of them won't be around for too much longer but if you're able to go grab them they come highly recommended with two thumbs up from me so (laughs) well there you go yeah how about you have you had anything good lately I did get a chance to try some new things last time I was at the resort I'm always on the lookout for a decent plant-based entree there's a they they typically rotate out pasta dishes at Blue Bayou, and currently they have a, a dish. It's the pistachio lemon basil pasta. Uh, it actually was really really good. It uh, it has asparagus and squash blossoms as well as a uh, pea tendrils and cherry tomatoes, I believe. And then you have this pistachio uh, sauce with it, and honestly, it, it was delicious. 
uh, pair it with a mint julep and dude, you're in Disneyland uh, heaven, or at least you're in Chuck Disneyland heaven. That's for sure. <laughs> Another thing I tried that, uh, you know, surprisingly I didn't like, uh, which I thought I would love the red rose tavern. I tried the patty melt potato bites. Mm, mm-hmm. So, I mean, obviously, you know, I've said it a million times already, potato bites, you're, you're going to win me over typically, right? I love potato <laughs> bites. Yeah. This one though, and and I've had patty melts in the past. So I'm like, okay, I, I can get behind that, you know, the kind of a deconstructed patty melt essentially, but you have the potato bites and they're covered with this cheese sauce. You have some ground beef, caramelized onions, special sauce, as well as some croutons and chives. Uh, the special sauce is what kind of threw me off a little bit. It was basically, or at least to me, it tasted like Thousand Island dressing mm-hmm. and it's one of those things that it was good for the first couple bites and then you kind of got tired of it. Mm. <laughs> You're like, eh, I'm like the it's flavor profile is a bit much. It's a yeah. bit much. Yeah. I wish I would have had like half and then the other half just regular potato bites and I probably would have been satisfied. Uh, so uh, probably not for me. Now, if you're someone who loves patty melts and kind of loves the taste of Thousand Island type dressing, and that sounds good to you. Maybe you would love it. For mm-hmm. me, uh, the the it just uh, the taste got kind of old after a while. It was a little. It was a bit much. So probably wouldn't get that again. I would just stick to my regular potato bites. But you know, a new potato bite dish. I had to try it. So you know, I wouldn't be me if I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, eh, kind of a meh on that one. Pro- probably mm. wouldn't get it again. And I'm not sure if it's seasonal or not. It's not listed as a Disney 100 item, but uh, you, you know how those things go. It's kind of like a while supplies last kind of thing sometimes. So mm-hmm. who knows? And then the last thing I tried, which sadly I think is not there anymore. But uh, when I was there in June, it, it was still... Uh, still pretty popular, but I tried the uh, strawberry Dole Whip Sunday at Tropical Hideaway, uh, which composed of strawberry Dole Whip topped with uh, diced strawberries. And then you had these uh, like pound cake, shortcake crumbles mm-hmm. on top of mm-hmm. it with uh, some strawberry drizzle. It was actually really good. Uh, it, it actually kind of replicated the taste of a strawberry shortcake you know, the addition of the shortcake with the Dole Whip, but it was actually really nice because the shortcake kind of uh, absorbed the Dole Whip pretty nicely. And so texture-wise, it was uh, it was pretty good. I really liked it. Now, did it dethrone the chili mango Dole Whip for me? No. <laughs> uh, no. no. I, I don't know that they can come up with a concoction that could top that because that chili mango is just me in a cup, like essentially. <laughs> like I, I love that. It's all my favorite flavors. So I don't know what they'd have to do to top that for me. But, uh, you know, if, if chili mango isn't your style and they end up bringing the strawberry Dole Whip Sunday back, which, you know, they will. These things are cyclical, and it was really popular. So I, I got to imagine they'll bring it back. So if they do, yeah, I, w- I would give it a try. I actually really enjoyed it. Anytime I can try a new type of Dole Whip, I'm going to be uh, on board for that because, you know, can't get enough Dole Whip. <laughs> Doesn't matter what flavor. Gonna, I'm going to try it. <laughs> 
Yeah, and, and they could bring it back because, you know, it wasn't listed as a seasonal thing per se. It just was one of those things that said, while well, supplies last, so uh, maybe they'll get the supplies again. I don't know. Hmm. <laughs> but I, I do know that uh, when I was there ordering it, and it had already been around for a couple months at that point, uh, there was quite a few people ordering it. It seemed to be rather popular. I feel like I saw someone like walking by with one. I, I, I don't know. Maybe I was imagining things. Who knows? Maybe it was your mind subconsciously telling you you should, <laughs> hey, strawberry Dole Whip, we got to get it. I mean, I'm all for trying the different flavors of Dole Whip. So, yeah, I I'm, I just, uh, for some reason, this summer I haven't made it to get Dole Whips. <laughs> That's blasphemous. You, you're too busy with the, uh, the, with cookies, the s'mores. The, and the- <laughs> all the other things. That by the time I, yeah, I don't even make it to that corner of the park. And I think the problem is that when I do, it's like fireworks time and it's mm. really difficult to get back in <laughs> into that little corner. Yeah, that's true. But yeah. Oh, well. I'll have to make a mental note to keep an eye out. There you go. All right. Well, we talked some good food uh, and it sounds like it was some pretty good food. You know, mm-hmm. you, you gave me some new things I want to try next mm-hmm. trip. So... Uh, that's always exciting. But let's say we transition and talk a little entertainment. This week's Fab Five, uh, we're counting down our five favorite non-human audio animatronics at Disneyland Park. <laughs> and on the surface, I thought this would be relatively easy. But uh, as we got into it, there, there was a few to choose from. And we, we got a little loose with our definition of audio animatronics. For me, it was basically just, uh, does it move? And... Does it have sound attached to it? <laughs> Audio animatronic. So why don't you kick us off, Amy, with number five? What do we have? For number five, we have... I feel like he needs a name. Can we name him? Buddy? Sport? I was going to like Fido. I don't know. Fido. Okay, there you go. Um, I would say Spot, but he doesn't have any spots on him. Number five was the infamous dog with the key... In the jail scene in Pirates of the Caribbean. (laughs) Yes, yes. Now, honestly, you know, Pirates is filled with iconic scenes, but this one is probably the most iconic. At least this is the one you see on postcards most often and pictures and all that. And yeah, the the dog is really pivotal to that scene. You know, he he really makes it. Uh, But let me ask you, though, if, if this scene were to play out in real life, do you think the dog would actually give the keys to the pirates or, or do you think he's just kind of trolling them? <laughs> hmm. I mean, I feel like the pirates aren't really offering him anything that's of enough quality to entice him <laughs> to give him the keys. <laughs> like, I think he says, come have a juicy bone. Like. Well, I don't want a juicy bone. Where's the meat on the bone? You know, (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I I feel like um, the dog would kind of sit there and stare at them and then run away with the keys. (laughs) See, I, I personally think that the dog is just completely trolling the pirates and he would eventually leave, but he would just drop the keys right there where it's just just out of arms. (laughs) Yes. just to taunt them and you're like nah man you're gonna offer me a bone that's it nah yeah. man that's how i always envisioned that playing out because to me he just seems kind of playful and he's just like nah dude you guys aren't getting this key <laughs> like sorry <laughs> yep all right well moving on to number four 
the tiki birds. Now, I feel like we've talked about uh, the Enchanted Tiki Room a few times. Uh, maybe that could be a running gag for our show. Like, how many times can we uh, work in the Enchanted Tiki Room? Because I feel like it's almost been every episode so far. But, you know, there's a reason for it. It's It's a great classic attraction. And, you know, how can you do a list of favorite non-human audio animatronics and not include the tiki birds. I mean, they're basically like some of the earliest examples of audio animatronics <laughs> period in the park. So uh, yeah. certainly they deserve a place on our list. And honestly, they still hold up for me. Like I, I love the show and I love the different birds. And yeah, it, it's just uh, so it's a fun experience and the audio animatronics certainly make that show. Definitely. Ooh, that brings us to number three. This is a big one, literally. He's huge. And his movement may be minimal. <laughs> <laughs> what well, what he lacks in movement, he makes up in heart and roars. <laughs> yes. Because Rar is dinosaur for I love you. <laughs> exactly. Yes. So. Number three is the giant T-Rex from the primeval world as you are enjoying your grand circle tour on the Disneyland Railroad. And uh, he's just, I don't know, there's something, <laughs> there's something about his little tiny T-Rex arms and he's fighting that stegosaurus at that last scene and I just, he makes me happy. <laughs> Anytime I, I see a T-Rex and I see those little arms, I always think of Meet the Robinsons and that seat, you know, <laughs> he's oh. like, go after him. I have the little arms, you know, it's just, yeah, <laughs> it's great. T-Rex, that's an iconic scene. The eternal battle between the T-Rex and the uh, Stegosaurus. You know, as a kid, I, I, yeah, I was enthralled as an adult. It still holds my attention. You know, your eyes are drawn to that. And it's just one of those classic Disneyland scenes, you know, that when you close your eyes and you think of classic Disneyland, you know, at some point the primeval world and that, that battle with the T-Rex will pop in your brain. And that's a good one. Mm -hmm. Certainly iconic. So moving on to number two, this is another relatively big character. Number two is the Yeti, or as he's more affectionately known, Harold from the Manahorn. <laughs> uh, or I guess we should call him Harold 2.0. I don't know. He's been updated yeah, uh, recently yeah. or back during the 60th anniversary. But whether it's new Harold or old Harold, I've always loved the addition of the Yeti and the Manahorn. It freaked me out every time when I was younger, uh, especially just the the roar and the sounds. Uh, it was just the anticipation of seeing him or running into him. Uh, I feel like it added so much excitement to the Manahorn. And now he he uh, he has some moves, man. <laughs> like it's, he's quite intimidating. <laughs> It's definitely a fearful audio animatronic and, and certainly iconic. I mean, I, I don't think the Mannerhorn would be quite the same without a good old Harold. Definitely worthy of number two on our, our list here. All right, Amy, well, you have the honors. Number one, who do we have? Coming in at number one, we have none other than RX24, now known as DJ Rex. DJ Rex. <laughs> or affectionately known as Captain Rex from Star Tours. Mm -hmm. But yeah, today he is DJ Rex at Oka's Cantina. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. The character of Rex, I mean, you know, we'll, we'll get into Star Tours here in a minute. 
but such an iconic character for me. And DJ Rex, you know, the moment I walked into Oga's Cantina for the first time and I saw DJ Rex right there, oh my God, dude, I was just grinning ear to ear. And then hearing that, uh, you know, Paul Rubens recorded uh, the new voice over for it, such a great moment for me. <laughs> I loved it. You know, I just remember his his little bit from the the old star tours attraction that he was a part of when he was, he was captain (laughs) and um, you know, he was, he was the one who took us on that crazy. We never did ever make it to the indoor moon, but um, goodness gracious, if we didn't have a fun time (laughs) enduring his, his crazy uh, spacecraft adventure there. Um, but there was something about walking into Oga's Cantina and hearing that voice again that I was like, ah, he's back. <laughs> it just brought me back to my childhood, basically. Yeah. You know? Well, that that whole night in Galaxy's Edge brought me back to my childhood. But yes. that that was kind of the cherry on the Sunday there was seeing Rex again or DJ Rex. And it's such a perfect use of the character, too, like having him DJ in Oga's Cantina. His little DJ groove that he would do with his little hand going. And so yeah. great. Oh. Yeah. So yeah, great. So good. So, yeah, Captain Rex, DJ Rex, number one. Uh, honestly, how could he not be? For me, it's the most iconic, non-human, audio-animatronic, I think. Uh, maybe arguably that there's ever been, at least for me personally. But that dovetails us right into our resort rewind this week. Uh, we wanted to revisit Star Tours, the original Star Tours, uh, which originally opened in January of 1987. Now, Amy, do you have uh, memories of Star Tours? Did you write it in those early days? Do you remember it? I'm trying to recall the first time that I remember writing it. Like, I. I feel like, I don't know if I wrote it in the early, early days. For sure, I remember going on it, um, like in the early 90s. Yeah, I definitely remember going on it then. I vividly remember my first time. It was uh, the summer of that year in 87. And my grandfather's work had a, a special work night at Disneyland. So this was back when companies would regularly buy out the park and oh, private parties. Yes. And, yeah. So mm-hmm. we, we got to attend one of those with him and this was obviously the early days of star tours. So me being a huge star Wars fan, I was super excited for star tours. So we lined up and because it was a private event that the lines were like next to nothing. Mm-hmm. So I got to go on Star Tours at least like four or five times in a row. First time, man, I was blown away, like blown away. The moment that cockpit shield lowered and, you know, Rex appeared and we took off and oh my gosh, (laughs) it was everything my little young heart wanted. You know, I was like actually in a Star Wars film. That's what it felt like. And the moment we did the uh, Death Star trench run, oh my God. I'm like, life doesn't get better than this. I'm actually in my favorite film franchise right now. This is amazing. Mm -hmm. And being able to experience it, you know, on the trip with my grandparents and that, that night with like low attendance and rushing to ride it again and again and again, I like, I I just couldn't get enough. Uh, I was a little bummed though, because at that point I still bought into the story that you would go to other destinations other than indoor. And I was like, how the heck am I still getting indoor every time? (laughs) It took me a while to catch on that. Oh, there's only indoor. Yeah. That's the only option, but 
I just remember being disappointed that we never actually ever made it to Endor because That's true I too. wanted to see the Ewoks. I like wanted to that. visit the Ewoks, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so the original Star Tours, though, did you have a favorite scene or what, what was some things you loved about it? Oh, gosh. I mean, I just remember um, the first time experiencing uh, light speed mm. and, you know... Uh, that feeling of like you're actually yeah. <laughs> going through warp speed. And I was like, okay, how, how, what, how is that? <laughs> Just remember that feeling. Um, I also remember aside from, you know, finally destroying the Death Star, mm-hmm. and getting out, you know, just the nick of time with everything exploding around right. you like you do in the movies. Um, I always loved going through the comet. <laughs> Mm, and like fun. breaking out breaking out through the comet like right before um you you pan to the death star you break out of the comet and you're like yes we made it and then i'm like yes we're gonna go see the ewoks and, and then the star destroyers just yeah. yeah just kidding <laughs> dun, dun, just dun. kidding yeah i just i i also <laughs> i also vividly remember the end like where you almost like crashed into the fuel, the fuel uh, train, mm-hmm. train car, and the the poor guy in the <laughs> in the booth, the, like the control tower booth thing or whatever, and he's like wigging out. Yeah, those are I for some reason those are the parts that stick out to me. A fun story about that when uh, I was younger, that that end scene, like my dad jokingly told me that that was George Lucas that you saw at the end there in the that you almost hit. It kind of looked like <laughs> it him. Did, it did kind of look like, so for a while there, I believe that, Oh, that's George Lucas. That's cool. Easter egg. But <laughs> later I found out my dad was pulling Wait, one over on me. It wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. You brought up the comment. And what I loved about star tours is dude, those simulators at the time, like they were revolutionary technology. I think it was like military. They basically got some military simulators to put in there and you felt everything like, and it felt like so real. Like when you busted out of that comment, like you felt it, right? Like mm-hmm. You felt it. You felt like the light speed, like you mentioned, and it just made the immersion like so much better because it really did it felt like you actually were flying in that thing and you you felt everything it it was just so great Mm -hmm. so great and then of course you know captain rex uh voiced as we mentioned by paul rubens uh such an iconic uh voice performance and i loved it every time when he would laugh you'd hear (laughs) that Wee herman laugh and it was so great yep yep (laughs) haha <laughs> <laughs> i'm still getting used to my programming yeah, such, such <laughs> perfect perfect voice casting and uh. when uh paul rubens passed away uh former imagineer mark eads he wrote uh, a, a tribute to paul rubens on his facebook page and he talked about you know the the search for the voice of rex and at the time mark was in charge of uh casting for star tour the original star tours so they were having a heck of a time like finding the right voice and of course a voice that george lucas himself would sign off on and then uh mark actually went to the theater and saw flight of the navigator and you know in that film of course paul rubens voices max the the spaceship and it was that voice that got paul rubens the job for 
uh, Captain Rex because Mark fell in love with that voice. It's perfect. And the rest, as I say, it was history. That That's how Paul Rubens like became Captain Rex, which honestly, I, I can't imagine anyone else doing that voice. It's such an iconic voice. You, you think kind of quintessential Disneyland voices, right? Like Captain Rex is one of those. Like he's certainly a voice of my childhood. <laughs> like I loved Star Tours. Absolutely loved it. But before we leave our Resort Rewind, real quick, uh, just a couple fun facts about the original Star Tours. There was a presentation that Imagineer Tom Fitzgerald gave back in 2010 at the Destination D event. And Tom Fitzgerald was actually the original uh, showrunner or head Imagineer for the original Star Tours. And according to him, the genesis for Star Tours... so. Lucas himself was a huge Disneyland fan. And then, of course, when Star Wars came out, you know, Disney became a huge Lucas fan <laughs> because like, oh, you know, how do we get this uh, into the park? And so uh, they met with Lu Lucas and the idea for an attraction began to take shape. But Star Tours as it exists today... Uh, really came to fruition. According to Fitzgerald, Tom Fitzgerald, when... George Lucas saw concept art to the super speed tunnel for the people mover, uh, which if you didn't get a chance to experience this is basically was this huge, like uh, almost 360 degree area. You would enter the people mover and it was just this giant screen that would uh, encompass you and it would simulate speed later. They would uh, bring the world of Tron to it and you would go through like a, a light cycle battle uh, but it was this idea of being able to immerse audiences within like a film that really got them thinking Star Tours simulator and kind of going down that road. So really, you know, Star Tours kind of owes its genesis to the people mover, which I, I find is pretty interesting <laughs> and kind of funny when you think when you think about it. Uh, maybe just one more reason that they should bring the people mover back. I don't know, but it's a conversation for another day. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be okay with that. <laughs> the other interesting tidbit. So, you know, the fate of Star Tours actually getting made, believe it or not, fell to the 14-year-old son of then CEO Michael Eisner. So luckily, you know, his son approved of Star Tours. <laughs> <laughs> he must have been a Star Wars fan. Yeah. So it, it got made. And of course, the, the rest is history there. Nice. But yeah, you know, Star Tours 1.0, I enjoyed it. Um, of course, uh, you know, Star Tours, the adventures continue. Uh, I really enjoy that as well. I do miss Captain Rex. <laughs> uh, although C-3PO was a nice consolation prize, <laughs> if I'm being honest, you know. That, that was a fun surprise the first time I, I rode that. Mm -hmm. Star Tours, always a special place in my heart. Captain Rex, special place. And of course... Paul Rubens, uh, that iconic voice. But let's close things out with a brand new segment for us. So we haven't done this before, but we're going to go beyond the berm, as we're calling it, uh, which is our chance to talk something uh, outside of the purview of the Disneyland Resort. Uh, in this case, we mentioned it briefly with Star Tours, but we wanted to talk Flight of the Navigator, uh, which is another iconic Paul Rubens a Disney character or tie flight of the navigator it was originally released in 1986, the summer of 1986. 
Uh, and Amy, what, uh, what are your thoughts on Flight of the Navigator? Did you watch it day one? Did you watch it in the theater or did you catch it later? I caught it later. I caught it on the Disney Channel after the okay. theater release. I just remember the first time I watched it um, being completely convinced that it was real. <laughs> For the time, the special effects were next level. Like they were very believable. Yeah, and I also, there was something about, um, I'm trying to remember, I can't remember the name of the little critter that he takes from the ship with him. Oh, right, right, right. But the, the, the cute little critter that he takes with him at the end, and, and I was like, see, see, it really did happen. It <laughs> like, did happen, yeah. <laughs> he has proof it happened. <laughs> and I also remember kind of like, not, I don't know that I really understood all of it, but I, I, I was a little freaked out about NASA <laughs> because of the way that they portray, um, you know, all the scientists like poking and prodding him for, you know, all the details. Yeah, NASA's kind of portrayed as Big Brother sort of in this movie. Like they're they're everywhere. And it's interesting because not only are they everywhere, but I mean they have their own helicopters. They have yeah. <laughs> it's like NASA's like essentially the army, <laughs> this film, right? It's kind of interesting. Yeah. I also remember secretly wishing um, that I that I could fly that ship. I don't know. It just seemed really cool. <laughs> well, the, the design of the ship itself was pretty cool. And honestly, I, I still think the look of it holds up to this day. I, it's such a sleek design. Who, who wouldn't want to go into that thing, right? I, I mean, it just... The way the steps like fall down and yeah, it's just so intriguing. I think for me, it was the the scene where um, David has Max like find music, you know, and he's because they they tried to stop and ask the one car for directions or whatever. And they were playing music really loud and and Max was asking what that was. And it's like, oh, music It's like, find some. Can you get radio waves or whatever? And has him like scan and jokingly like opera comes on and david's like ew that's not music <laughs> you know <laughs> but then ends up on um the beach boys and it's this scene of him just having the time of his life flying this you know spacecraft to the beach boys <laughs> and they're right, right. dancing and having a grand old time and um i just remember thinking gosh that would be so cool to fly that thing <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I didn't catch the film in the theater either. I believe I caught it on the Sunday they, when they were doing the Wonderful World of Disney, like the Sunday movies. Oh, uh-huh. I was a day one fan, though. The, the moment I saw it, I fell in love with it. I, I thought it just spoke. You know, I was already a kid who loved Star Wars. And I, I think most kids of that age, like, we were fascinated by space and space travel and you know, mm -hmm. the, the idea of being able to pilot a starship like that or a ship like that, it's every kid's dream. Like, who wouldn't want to do that? Hmm. It was so fun to watch um, the relationship between David the Kid and Max uh, develop over the course of the film. It was it was cool, like, how it started as kind of this, like, cold relationship, you know, very, like, Max was very just robotic right yeah and then that that pivotal scene where he finally scans david's brain and kind of 
takes on some of his human traits. That's when they really started bonding and they almost became like brothers. Like it, it was just really fun to see like their relationship mm-hmm. develop throughout the film where towards the end, like you really bought into that they were going to miss each other. And, you know, David even started tearing up, you know, and he was, he realized that he might not ever see Max again. And, and you bought into that, like, <laughs> because, you know, we, we, we spent an entire film, like seeing these two like bond, and so, yeah, that relationship was pretty cool. Pretty cool. But also that that scene where he scans the brain, where Max scans the brain, like that to me, that's where Paul Rubens really begins to shine in the film. Like that's where you see like Paul Rubens, right? Yeah. In, in the film. And then he does the, of course, that Pee Wee Herman laugh. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was the telltale sign for me. I don't think I realized who it was until that laugh. And then I was like, wait a minute. Wait a second. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> That sounds familiar. <laughs> you have a favorite scene or anything that stood out to you? It's particularly uh, intriguing or funny, or interesting. I think aside from the 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 Beach Boys song scene, um, I always thought it was um, maybe because I secretly thought it would be fun to hide inside of a robot when he escapes the room that they have him kept in in that little, I can't think of his name, but the little male robot. Yeah. What was that? It was like Ralph. I Ralph. Think, or maybe that's like what that. it was. Yeah. Ralph. Thanks to, uh, uh, Sarah Jessica Parker's character, um, befriending him and, you know, explaining to him about it and helping, helping him, you know, get in there <laughs> and escape that whole scene where he gets taken in the little, droid robot thing uh, across the NASA campus. You know, you see all these big cars and security and it's just flying by, takes them straight to the, the, uh, the big warehouse where um, the spacecraft is in. And then, um, you know, how, how as soon as he's there, there in front of the spacecraft, the little stairs come down. <laughs> um, that part sticks out to me. Which, by the way, like, that was a fun scene with the Ralph. Yeah. I mean, they, they set that up brilliantly. Obviously, that was such a, you know, clever way for him to escape. And the whole time, I, I was just enthralled by Ralph because I was intrigued by the idea of having a robot that could just bring you food like that. It's like, <laughs> that would be amazing. I mean, he did all the things. He brought you food. He brought you mail. It was great. Provides a means for escape. Yeah. <laughs> what can't Ralph do? Yeah. Yeah. And then um, I guess the other, for some reason, I, it's the end part where uh, his brother goes onto the roof of the house and sets off the fireworks for him to find. Yeah. yeah. Which for me, I, like, I loved that time. First of all, I just, I loved the, like, the big brother, little brother relationship that they had at the beginning and, and, you know, um, and, and how that evolved with older, older Jeff with. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, literally like your little brother becomes your bigger brother. Like that's such a, that would be such a weird (laughs) juxtaposition of Mm. like roles there that, yeah, that, that was certainly intriguing. Yeah. And I love how, how it ends with him. You know, obviously he, he at the end of the movie you know he's back at the his normal normal timeline and um it's the fourth of july again and they're you know going out on the boat and the moment where you know he's he's having that realization of of 
the gift that he's been given and he tells his, you know, parents that how much he loves them. And even, even, even you, he says, you know, to his brother or whatever. And, and the, the parents look on are like shocked. Face, yeah. The look <laughs> on their faces. And, um, and then that moment where the little creature pops out of his backpack, mm, like mm-hmm. I love, just to I remind you that, that it was guy. real. Yeah, and yeah, then yeah. the brother's reaction when he sees it, it's like so cute. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, yeah. that was fun. I think that was, it made the, made the ending super, super cute. And then the how it ends. What, what does Max say? See you later, navigator. <laughs> instead of instead of alligator. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, that that was that was awesome. I I think for me, you know, I have a, I have a couple favorite scenes. Cer- certainly, like the ones that you brought up were great. I, one of the first scenes that I, is just the opening scene, and I love how it sort of plays tricks with your mind or if it kind of fakes you out, <laughs> yeah. right? Like you see like the the silver disc going it's through the screen and you're saucer. like, yeah. And then suddenly this giant dog like grabs up and you're like, wait, what? <laughs> like it, It's just such a great way to open the film. And then suddenly like the it's this montage of dogs jumping for Frisbees and you're like, wait, is this the wrong movie? <laughs> like I thought this was about a flying spaceship. <laughs> so it's just such a fun way to open the film, uh, it kind of sets you a little off kilter. And then of course they play into it again when, uh, the blimp goes overhead, <laughs> everybody's looking up in the sky. There's right. this like shadow, like casting over everybody. So yeah, the fake outs in the beginning, I think were fun. You know, you can tell like the writers, the director and everything was having fun with the audience at that point. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm here for it. Like that was such a great way to open the film. Another favorite scene of mine is Owl's Gator City when they land oh. there. <laughs> yes. So uh, David could call home. Yes. Th- that whole scene is just amazing. Uh, first off, I love the tourist family that comes up. It doesn't even like blink twice. Yeah. They just think it's some like roadside attraction. <laughs> They're all checking it out. And then, you know, of course, Al, or I, I think they refer to him as Big Al, mm-hmm. uh, he's just standing there, like, transfixed, like, shock. yeah, can't believe what he's looking at. Oh, and the dad, <laughs> how'd you yes. make that thing look so real? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, yeah, so, so, so hilarious. Uh, it's such a great uh, comedy beat and then of course after david uh finishes on the phone he comes back and of course the spaceship you know takes off in front of everybody and they're all amazed like yeah, oh my god it's yeah. real it's real <laughs> and then i love like big al's line is like he said he wanted to call home <laughs> yeah which of course is a fun nod to et yeah yeah <laughs> Uh, God bless Big Al. <laughs> that, was, that was a great, that was a great scene. Uh, and then of course, you know, I already mentioned when Max scans David's brain for the first time and, mm-hmm. you know, that's, that's really when that relationship blossoms and the whole film though, is just such, uh, it's a heartwarming, like fun sci-fi adventure. I think for me, I, you know, I, I hadn't watched it in a number of years and I just, you know, rewatched it for, for the show. And yeah, I forgot how fun it is. Like, it's just such a fun movie. There's a lot of comedy. There's a lot of emotion. Uh, and there's a lot of adventure too. It's one of those great eighties movies. It just sort of hits all emotional cylinders. Really? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, there, there's something for everyone. It took me back to like those simpler days, you know, like the days of, Amblin Entertainment, kind of, kind of that vibe, right? Like old school, like fun adventure, sci-fi. 
I was also surprised like how long it took to introduce Max. I felt like the movie was like a third of the way through by the time we we actually introduced Max. So that was interesting. Like I, I didn't remember it like taking that long initially, but I'm kind of glad it did because it gave us a chance to really uh, sit with the relationship of David and his family and everything like that. So you kind of bought into them missing him and him missing mm-hmm. them and, you know, like that whole, which was a, a vital point to the movie. It was all about kind of the connections with our loved ones and things like that. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I thought it was, it was appropriate. I think it also like showed the dynamic of the the relationship between David and Max because, you know, they show the scenes where the, the ship landed and everybody's like poking at it and prodding at it and nothing's happening. It like, they push it and it floats, but there's nothing that's nothing. There's no sign of anything on this thing that they found, you know, and they strap it down to a big truck and take it back to NASA and still like no response, no nothing. And, um, it's not until David is on the property that all of a sudden, it starts communicating with him, you know, or co- mm, right. you know, communicating for him. There's this connection there between them and the the information that he dumped in his brain, you know. How many scientists and things have been around this ship and nothing has happened until this kid shows up and then all of a sudden it opens up, you know. It's like right, he was right. the magic key that... <laughs> that would open it up and made me kind of sentimental watching it again. I don't know if it's cause it like took me back to my childhood, but yeah, it was, it was a fun rewatch. Um, I love that it's on Disney plus to enjoy. Um, I think I have the DVD somewhere, <laughs> but I love that it's on Disney plus. So I can watch it whenever. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and rewatching it, like I can totally see how, uh, the role of Max landed Paul Rubens, uh, Captain Rex. Uh, I mean, yeah, because you're like, oh, yeah, yeah I, I, I see it. Mm-hmm, <laughs> I see it. Totally. I see why they would, they wanted to go in that direction because, mm-hmm. yeah, such a great voice. Two iconic droids, I guess, uh, in space, Paul Rubens is voiced. So definitely a huge, huge, huge part of my childhood. Um, before we leave uh, our Beyond the Berm section, though, I have a couple fun facts about Flight of the Navigator that I thought were interesting. Uh, number one, the director, Randall Kleischer, also directed and helmed the Honey, I Shrunk the Audience attraction at Disneyland. Oh. So that's a fun little connection there. Okay. Interesting. Also, th- this was kind of an interesting tidbit. So all of the interiors of the ship were shot in Norway, uh, whereas, you know, the film itself takes place in primarily Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Uh, so they filmed in Florida for a lot of the uh, external scenes, mm. but the interiors of the ship were shot in Norway. Why Norway, you ask? Because according to the director, apparently a producer had blocked funds that could only be spent in Norway. So, yeah, they decided to <laughs> take the crew to Norway. Uh, of course, also according to the director, there was a later rumor uh, that suggested that those blocked funds never came through. So potentially they shot Norway for no reason. <laughs> that was actually the case. <laughs> Interesting. It's kind, of, it's kind of funny to me. I would have had no idea that it was shot in Norway, the interiors. I do remember seeing that in the credits and thinking, well, that's odd. <laughs> Yeah, Norway, where? 
Yeah. yeah. And then, of course, uh, Paul Rubens, uh, you might be a little uh, perplexed if you stay for the credits because Paul Rubens actually uses the pseudonym Paul Mall is who he's credited as at the end of the film in the credits. Uh, the reason he did that, and it was his decision, and again, this is uh, based on uh, words from Randall Kleischer, the director. Uh, essentially, Paul Rubens wanted his involvement to be uh, a secret or a surprise when the film released. Uh, also, at that time, Paul Rubens was very much in the Pee Wee Herman character, and he wanted uh, people to buy into the illusion that Pee Wee was a real person. So uh, he very rarely appeared as himself. Um, and so this is a case, too, where he just didn't want people to know it was Paul Rubens that was providing that voice. So I thought that was interesting. It's the only time he was credited as Paul Mall. Don't really know why, where he got the Mall name from. I, who knows? It just rhymed. Paul Mall, yeah. <laughs> it would surprise me if that's <laughs> just, what rhymes with Paul. Mall. <laughs> And the last little fun tidbit is a flight of the navigator was actually the feature film debut for Sarah Jessica Parker. So it was her very first feature film. Okay. So there you go. Flight of the navigator. You can currently catch it on Disney plus. Uh, if you haven't seen it, highly recommend giving it a whirl. Uh, it's a fun eighties adventure sci-fi film. Uh, great for the whole family. Before we get out of here, uh, Amy, did you have anything else you'd like to add uh, about Paul Rubens. I just had a, you know, a flashback to, um, was Halloween 2021. Um, I was invited to go to the bank of California stadium to see the nightmare before Christmas live, uh, concert. They, they did it previously, uh, at the Hollywood bowl, but it's basically, you know, they, they do it every, I think they do it every Halloween weekend where they basically play, you know, Nightmare Before Christmas and they bring in uh a lot of the the actors and stuff to to do their roles and and um they will play the the movie and have a full orchestra playing the the score and the songs and um and have, you know, voice actors doing doing the voices and songs and stuff like that. And, um, and I just remembered it was, I thought I got really excited because he was there to do his role of lock, um, lock, lock, shock and barrel are probably <laughs> some of my favorite characters from nightmare before Christmas. And, and he, uh, voiced lock in nightmare before Christmas. And he was there to, to do, um, that, that character, um, for the night that I was there. And, I don't know. It was just, it was neat to get to see him do that in person. And, and then now knowing that, you know, he was, that was in the midst of his struggle with cancer. Like, I don't know. It just makes it all the more meaningful that I got to, to be there for that, to see that performance. So, yeah, that's, that's cool, man. And honestly, yeah, we didn't, we didn't even touch on his, uh, voice role in Nightmare Before Christmas mm -hmm. as Locke. So, yeah, that that honestly, that would have been very cool. To, I mean, that would have been cool to see any time, but yeah, especially in context uh, with what ultimately transpired with him. Like, yeah, it's pretty special. So yeah, definitely Paul Rubens uh, will be missed. Certainly uh, part of my childhood, part of Amy's childhood and strong, strong connections to Disneyland and Disney. And with that, it's time for us to say goodbye. 
On behalf of Amy and myself, we hope you enjoyed your time with us today. And if you did, the best way to ensure your adventure continues is to subscribe and follow the show. You can find out how to do that at helloproject55.com. And we would love to connect with you in between episodes. You can find us on our Instagram at helloproject55. Don't forget to tag us in your Disney adventures. We can't wait to see how you guys enjoy uh, the resort as well. Yeah, definitely. And we'll be back next week with more exciting Disneyland adventures. Until then, take care and we'll see you real soon. Oh, 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 oh,